Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege that you allow us to serve you in so many ways. You're the God of the universe. You're the creator of all things. Your name is above all names. And as the psalmist wrote, who are you that you would consider man? For we, Father, are nothing apart from you and we have nothing we can offer you. You have all wisdom. You have everything before you, all that the world contains. And yet you give us opportunity to bring our gifts that you yourself have given us, to bring our wealth which you yourself have provided, to bring our energy which you yourself sustain, and to give these things back to you as our spiritual service of worship. And you do these things, Father, to bless us. We thank you, Father, that we have opportunity in all of these ways to serve you and in many ways besides. And all you ask, Father, from us is that our life would be focused entirely on you. That what you've given to us would be yours as we seek to return it. And you ask us, Father, to do that through a conscious effort, through a knowledge of who you are, through a careful and deliberate study of your word, through the calling of the spirit who lives in us so that all that we are is yours, all that we have is yours, so that what we are is you and the world would see that. We confess, Father, that we often put our own needs ahead of yours, that we serve the world and our own needs and our own strength, putting yours aside at times. But we thank you, Father, that where we may be faithless, you remain faithful, you continue in the work that you began so that you will complete it in the day. And we live in these promises, Father, for without them we are nothing. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the counsel that it will offer, the encouragement that it holds, the correction that it requires. Let us be attentive to all that it may have for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week I think I put to rest any concern that our church is a feel-good preaching kind of place. As if there were any doubt. I was reminded after my last sermon by one of our uh, church members who shall go unnamed, but their initials are Todd Erdner, that... That after that sermon on the foolish audience that believes in a foolish message, that uh, they, they certainly don't come here to be puffed up. You know, I have to admit, I like to feel good about myself sometimes. Who doesn't, really? The world loves it so much, in fact, that many now in the church are preaching messages of self-esteem and self-worth just because they know the audiences love to hear that kind of stuff. We're told, in fact, that that kind of stuff is healthy for us, that it's a good thing if we have a positive self-image and And perhaps that's true to a degree, but pandering to the flesh, such as it is, has consequences. This new approach to preaching in the church has twisted the gospel itself into a message of happiness and materialism. And you all know exactly what I'm talking about, because today men and women are invited into Christianity, not as a means of reconciling with God, but as a source for earthly happiness, earthly fulfillment, and for all that the world offers rather than God. In fact, there's so much feel-good preaching ringing in our ears these days that when someone like me stands up and presents a message out of Scripture that runs contrary to that stream of happiness, it's a bit of shocking, isn't it? Now, I'm not coming up here every Sunday with the intent to say something that you won't like, but because I read the Bible, there's a pretty good chance that that's going to happen. And at the end of the day, Christians are supposed to ask themselves, 
What does the Bible teach us about ourselves and about God? Let that be our plumb line. What does the Bible say in contrast to what we're hearing from so many pulpits? For example, does the word of God command God's children to develop greater self-esteem? Can you find me the scripture that says that? Does it teach us that we were called into faith so that as a result, we would think better of ourselves? Does that sound like anything you've read in your Bible? Does it identify the lack of self-esteem as the source of our problems? What does the Bible say? Well, simply put, the Bible says we do not need more self-esteem. Mankind already has way too much of it. Self-esteem is the psychologist's term for an old biblical word, pride. Pride is a bad word in Scripture. I'd say it's a four-letter word, but it doesn't work out. Satan's pride was the source of evil in the world. And our pride is the source of our sin and all the misery that it creates. And the world keeps telling you, you need more of it. Go figure. Instead of more self-esteem, you know what the Bible says? You need more Christ-esteem. We need a greater appreciation of who Christ is, of what he has done for us, and who we can become in him. And at the same time, in order for that to happen, you have to have less self-esteem to make room in your heart for more of Christ. They're mutually opposed to one another. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And John connects those in a cause and effect. For Christ to be properly magnified in our understanding in our life, we must, by necessity, diminish our view of self to make room for him. So don't be surprised if you don't feel affirmed as I study Scripture with you in this room. In fact, if our study of Scripture leaves you feeling a little better about yourself at the end of each Sunday, then you're not listening carefully. That's one of Paul's purposes in this letter, isn't it? As we've studied it in the first chapter. He wrote this chapter, if not the whole book, to a church that was suffering with too much pride and not enough Christ esteem. Paul wanted to address their pride. And so he began in the first chapter explaining to them how they entered into faith, for that had become in itself a source of their pride, how they came into faith. I'm of Paul and of Apollos and all of that. So in chapter 1 and then now today, beginning in chapter 2, Paul teaches what I will tell you is essential communication theory. Communication theory holds at its simplest level that all communication involves a sender and a receiver and a message that has to be communicated between the two. And look at the chapter in that way for a minute. Look at chapter one as we've already gone through it. Paul started by explaining that the Lord designed a foolish message. So the message that was communicated was by design foolish sounding. And that foolish sounding solution was posed to the question of how man may find God and be reconciled to the question. How do I find God? God himself gave us a foolish sounding answer. And then we heard, secondly, in that chapter that the Lord chose a foolish audience who would then receive this message. A group of people who the world would never consider to be wise or strong or noble. So message, receiver. But what about the messenger? What about the sender in this communication process? Well, Paul now addresses the sender in chapter 2. And he's going to show once again that God chooses foolish messengers to deliver this message to the gospel. So if the church was starting to feel a little insulted, maybe some of you were last week as well, about the foolish message and all of, what's up with that, Steve? Well, don't worry, Paul's going to throw himself into this same pot. He's the foolish messenger in this case. Look in chapter 1, chapter 2 rather, verse 1. Paul's going to teach now 
that God chose foolish messengers to deliver the message of the gospel, men who the world would view as weak and unimpressive. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul says, if you'll remember, I, I didn't come to Corinth with uh, you know, superiority in speech. In, in Greek, what he literally said there was, I didn't come with prominent words. Prominent words. Apparently, from what Paul says about himself, if you were to have heard Paul preaching in the day, you wouldn't have been particularly impressed with what you saw. In fact, later, in the next letter he writes to this church in 2 Corinthians, we call it 2 Corinthians, he quoted his detractors in Corinth in the things they were saying about him. And this is what he says at one point, 2 Corinthians 10.10. Paul says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Paul says his speech was quoted as being contemptible or despised. Remember, Greece was ground zero in the ancient world for professional debaters. For professional orators in the ancient world. They loved this stuff. They ate it up. It would be like playing soccer in England or in Latin America. You were going in against the big guys. And so here comes Paul, a man who apparently lacked stage presence. He was unimpressive, he says, about himself. Probably because his impressive letters would have caused you to expect so much. And then he shows up and eh, not quite what I was expecting. I can almost hear the crowd kind of whispering now. You know, he just seems so much taller in his letters. And less Jewish. A lot less Jewish. But it wasn't just that his speech was unimpressive. Paul says, I came without superior wisdom either. It wasn't just how I did it. It's what I brought. That is that word for wisdom again. We studied it back in chapter 1. It's Sophia. Paul says, I walked into a city which itself was already filled with Greek wisdom and Greek philosophy. And then, by Corinthian standards, I laid an egg. I came in with no wisdom of any impressive sort for their sake. His arguments to the gospel, in other words, didn't rest on how he said it. He didn't have intricate defenses. He didn't have great analogies and stories. He just came in and gave what he said was the testimony of God, he said. Paul says, I came and I proclaimed the testimony of God. The word for proclaim there, it's a really good word for understanding what Paul is saying about what he did. It is to announce or declare publicly. To announce or to declare publicly. He went, it seems, about in this city proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And then he waited to see if he got a response. We see that reflected at a point in the book of Acts as he goes from the synagogue to the home of Crispus and then onward. And what did he say? What was this testimony specifically? Well, he says, Jesus and him crucified. So to have a full appreciation on what Paul said he did, imagine this unimpressive, short Jewish guy walking in to the hall of fame of debaters and orators with no arguments, with no defenses, simply proclaiming Jesus, which refers to the God man, God made incarnate in the form of man 
in the form specifically of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and then to him being God in the flesh so that he could come and live a sinless life. And then crucified refers to the, the work he did on the cross. His life lived to a point of death on a Roman cross, atoning for our sin and then resurrecting to his glory. It's not a very complicated story. I mean, I just gave it in what, 20 seconds, more or less. I mean, you could do it a little longer if you really wanted to elaborate, but that's basically it. The gospel. Paul says, that's what I proclaimed. That's when I spoke publicly throughout the city. At the end of verse four, Paul notes that his presentation was not without some measure of substance or power. He says it came with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, what he's referring to there is something unique to the ministry of apostles. These men, the men we call apostles in Scripture, these were men in the early church who played an important and unique role in the founding of the first century church. They were commissioned to preach the gospel and to deliver Jesus' teaching to early believers. That was their principal ministry. And in fact, that teaching becomes our Scripture today. But in order to authenticate their message, God gave these men, the men we call apostles, special gifts, spiritual gifts of a different kind. Gifts that were wholly unique to them and to their station in the church, to their mission. You can read about some of these unique gifts all throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. You hear about men raising people from the grave, from the dead. Paul does that to the man who falls out the window as he's preaching. You hear about them healing sick. Peter does it just by the casting of his shadow on people who are sitting on the side of where he walks. You hear about their ability to cause men to fall dead. By a word of their mouth, Peter does that to Ananias and Sapphira. You even see them being told at a point in the Gospels that they'll be able to handle dangerous snakes, be bitten, and yet not be hurt by them. You see Paul experiencing that at one point after he's shipwrecked. These are self-evidently not gifts common to all believers. And never were they intended to be. These are gifts that were given to special men who had special purpose in the founding of the church. When those men came, like Paul did, into Corinth and they combined this message of the gospel, the proclamation of the testimony of God, with spiritual powers that God had assigned to them, that they received by the Spirit, then they were able to authenticate their office and their message. As a result, those powers were essential to that process of validation. Those powers were perceived by the audience to be God's endorsement of their message. For it stands to reason that if God was not pleased with what they were saying, then God would not be giving them the power to do what they're doing. Right. That's the basis of the power having to authenticate. It was also, by the way, how the early church knew who were false apostles. And there were many who tried. Paul warns of these who come along. John warns of these who would come along. Peter warns of these who would come along. Jude warns about these who would come along. These men came into the church claiming to be apostles because anyone can make the claim. But when it came time to validate what they said, they could not replicate all of the special powers that uniquely identified apostles. And when that happened, the church knew to ignore their teaching. That's why the canon of Scripture is easily authenticated and validated for its authorship traces to the apostles, not to just any old Joe who happened to sit down and write something. We know that they spoke with the power of God. So Paul says the message of the gospel came, but not without power. It came with the power of God as it was demonstrated in his apostolic powers. He says, I didn't rely on human wisdom or human power to convince you that what I was saying was true. 
I simply proclaimed it, and then God, in his power, demonstrated the truth of it to you. Knowing this, Paul said he did three things. Because he knew all of this, it affected his methodology. What was his method? Well, first, he showed up. He came to them. He said, I came to you was the first step. That's probably 95% of any work of ministry, showing up. Showing up for the event, showing up at church, showing up with people, showing up when God calls you, just showing up. Responding to the call, having the courage and the conviction to follow God's call, to go to the people that perhaps no one else would want to go to, to go to the place that no one thinks you should go, to do the things the world says doesn't make sense. 95% of it right there. How many people do we know who for that reason alone fail in ministry, whatever their particular ministry? They don't show up. And I don't just mean physically show up. They don't respond to the call. That's the first thing. Second thing Paul says. I proclaim the message. Paul was active. He was purposeful. He didn't just wander through Corinth like we might do, looking for someone he could quietly approach and maybe get to know over coffee. And then, maybe as they're talking, that person might happen to ask about religious things. And if it happens, then I'll have a chance to talk about Jesus. He didn't just have spiritual conversations with people in a generic way, hoping that maybe he could wander his way to Jesus without offending them. Because after all, it's a foolish message. It will offend. He wasn't content to simply sit in a public place wearing a what would Jesus do T-shirt, reading his Bible on his iPad, hoping somebody might look over his shoulder, notice it's a Bible and say, hey, what are you reading, bub? And then he could say, I'm glad you asked. I have something to talk to you about. How many of us think like that? I'm my own worst enemy in this. You know, you sit in a plane, you got a guy right here or a gal right there. You can just have a conversation all day long. I mean, they're not going anywhere. They can't get away. They got a belt on them. To hold them in place. Yeah, they can tell you they're busy, try to read, but you can work through that. You can just keep talking. I've had people do that. But what do I do instead? I open my Bible and just sort of hope they'll look at it and wonder, why are you reading a Bible? Like they've never seen one before, right? I mean, you know, the thinking, the thinking is I'll let them make the first move. What Paul did is he showed up and he was purposeful because he only had come there for this reason. Why else would he go to Corinth? To walk amongst them, to proclaim the gospel boldly, publicly, and frequently. The book of Acts says he goes into synagogues first. But then after that, homes, businesses, street corners, wherever he went, he declared the truth. And why did he do that? Because Paul depended upon, he expected God's power to show up. Not for everyone. He knows that. We know that. But on cue, as God determined, there would be a response and he'd be there for it because he went out. That's it. Now, could it be that our hesitation to evangelize is partly, at least, out of an ignorance of what's truly required? Because perhaps we've imagined this process in an exactly the wrong way. We put all of the weight on our shoulders, none of it on God. We've thought it all about how we're going to do what we're going to do rather than what God's going to do. Did you know that evangelism is this easy? Did you know it does not require superiority of speech? You don't have to come out with fancy new ways to say it. It doesn't rest on the superiority of your wisdom. It's a rehearsed speech. What you're rehearsing is the gospel. Once you've got that, all you're doing is repeating it. I know the scripture says, be ready with a defense. But do you know what Peter actually means when he says that? What he's saying is that when you're suffering and the world looks upon your suffering and they wonder, why are you still joyful in the midst of suffering? Then you have your defense ready to say, because my life and my goals and my joy isn't found in this world. Would you like to know where you can find it too? 
That's why you're ready to give a defense. It's to that specific experience in life when the Christian's response to suffering looks so different from the world's. So, yes, be ready for that. Have a defense for that moment. But that's not the way you communicate the gospel generally. It's about showing up, proclaiming the truth of the gospel publicly, and then you wait to watch for God's power. It really is that simple. Now, along the way, you're going to have to be prepared for some things. Right? Chief among them, rejection. And maybe a few odd looks. Maybe family telling you, Shh, will you stop doing that in public? You're going to embarrass the rest of us. We go, we proclaim, God changes hearts. It's just that easy. We've been so worried about having the right words and the arguments and then answering the challenges that we forgot that the basic point is simply to proclaim a foolish message. Don't dress it up, Paul says. The joy of serving Christ in the Great Commission is in the simplicity of what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim Christ and him crucified. We tell the story of the gospel to the world. It doesn't matter how many times they've already heard it. It doesn't matter how likely we think they are to receive it. It really doesn't matter if they receive it, not from the point of view of why we do it. That's up to God. It only takes a second for the spirit to bring faith into the heart. And it comes by the power of God. So if it helps, think of it a little bit like using a slot machine to use a very inappropriate comparison for the sake of my point this morning. I mean, why do slot machines work? Because you never know if the next time you pull is going to be the time and you're hoping it is so badly you're willing to pay to find out. So just keep pulling the lever, so to speak. But you have to show up and you have to proclaim. Paul says in verse five, God designed this process, this simple process of salvation in this beautiful way so that when faith arrived, it would not rest, he says, on the wisdom of men. Rest. The word Greek for rest, EMI, it simply means to belong. It's actually the word belong. I really wish they had used that word in English instead of rest. Think about it from that point of view. The message of the gospel and its results belong to God, not to the wisdom of men. We can never declare, according to Paul, that we were of Paul or of Apollos because those results belong to God. In fact, you know, you cannot even say you are of yourself. You cannot even say, I did something to bring myself into faith. The message of the gospel rests entirely on grace and on the power of God. Now, since the beginning of this letter, Paul has repeatedly emphasized the foolishness of the message. But when Paul uses the word foolish... We know that he means that in comparison to the world's idea of wisdom. That's how it's seen as foolish. It doesn't mean the gospel is actually foolish. It just means that the world rejects the gospel because it doesn't line up with their thinking. And in that sense, they see it as foolish. But Paul says, for the one who has received the gospel and then come to faith, now, Paul says, there is real opportunity to know wisdom of God, to see something of God that is wise. In other words, while you're in the world, before you know the gospel, what God offers is foolishness. But by his power, you become believing. And then in this new state, now you have access to true wisdom, Paul says. That's the next thing in the letter he wants to talk about in chapter 2. He wants to talk about the knowledge, the wisdom that is available to the person who receives the gospel and how it comes. But... He's going to make this point all the way now, actually, into chapter 3. This wisdom, this wisdom of God that becomes available to you and I, does not come all at once, and it does not show up automatically. Look at verse 6. He says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, 
nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, all and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says, yeah, we, we do speak wisdom now. We do. And when he says we, of course, he's referring to the apostles, to those who were teaching this church, Paul, Apollos, Peter, the ones that they were claiming to be of. He says, yeah, we, we did come with wisdom after all. It's a wisdom of a very different kind, different from what the world seeks. Now, that news, that statement, I think, out of Paul's mouth at this point would have piqued the interest of this church, don't you think? Because at this point, they're probably feeling a bit beaten down and they're starting to wonder, well, if this is nothing but foolishness from top to bottom, why do we even have an interest in it to begin with? We want to know something new and different and powerful, something from God. Give us something wise. And Paul says, yeah, there is something like that out there for you. But it says that wisdom is accessible only to the mature, spiritually mature. Paul's going to come back to this issue, as I said, in chapter 3, dealing with the issue of individual maturity in the faith and where this church actually ranks, where they rack and stack on the scale of maturity, and it's not very high. And he'll point that out. But for now, he's simply establishing that there is a wisdom available to those who can seek it in maturity. But it's enough for now to know that the arrival of our faith does include that opportunity. And Paul says this wisdom is not going to be something you can find in the world. It's not found in this age. It's not among those powerful members of our society, those rulers, all of whom are passing away. That wisdom that God offers is different than the wisdom you're familiar with in this world. And maybe we should change the word here to make it a little easier. When I say wisdom, it's just a fancy word for truth. Truth. There is a truth of this world which is no truth at all, but it's out there. And then there is the truth of God. And there is the truth that worldly leaders seek after and understand and and perpetuate. And then there is the truth that God makes known. These are different truths. Now, only one of them is true. But what we're saying is they're different worlds of thought. And the truth of this age is no truth at all, Paul says, because it's passing away just like the world that contains it, just like the people who are in it. The things you get taught all the time as you walk outside this building about the creation, about the order of things, about the state of man's heart. You ever heard anybody say we're born naturally good and the world is what makes us bad? One day, all men die, all pass away. The world passes away as well. When those things happen, the lies that they created, that men created in their hearts, that the world sustains through the work of the enemy, those things pass away with it. So. Paul is simply reflecting the truth of what Peter says when he discusses the end that's coming for this world. That everything in it burns up, Peter says. So the thinking of the world goes with it. And yet, the word of God never ceases, according to Scripture. So there is a wisdom God provides. There is a wisdom the world provides. Paul says the wisdom of the world passing away just like the world itself. The wisdom I'm going to give you that God makes available through the gospel is a wisdom you'll take with you into eternity. And then even more surprising than that, if that surprised anyone, Paul says God has crafted this wisdom in the form of a mystery. When you see the word mystery in the New Testament, Paul's the one who uses it by and large the most. It has a specific meaning in Scripture. Any truth hidden until an appointed time when God reveals it. There are eight mysteries in the New Testament. 
if you're counting. And we don't have time to go through them all, but a couple of examples. The fact that there would be a Gentile church in God's plan was a mystery until it was revealed in Paul. No one knew that. That's why Peter was so upset at the prospect of preaching to Gentiles. He never considered the possibility that there was actually going to be a Gentile church. It was a mystery until it was revealed. That the church would be raptured, Paul says, was another mystery until he revealed it. There's six more in Scripture in the New Testament. And the gospel itself is a hidden mystery. The message that God would bring a man into the world who was God himself, that that man would die for our sin, and that a church of believers would be established in his name after he left, and that one day he returns and he sets up a physical kingdom on earth. That was a mystery, and still is to the world who does not believe it. Paul says the gospel itself was hidden, in a mystery, foolish one, that then God reveals like an Easter egg opened for someone on the day appointed. And with that comes gifts that lead to greater wisdom. Paul's already taught that the gospel itself is a wisdom hidden, but there's more to it than that. All that you can learn in the New Testament about what it means to be a Christian, about what's coming next, all of that is a mystery to the world. That's what the believers are to the world. We're just foolish people with strange messages, ripe for the mocking. Paul says the Lord wanted it this way. You know, this isn't a problem we're supposed to solve. This is a reality that gives God glory and diminishes the pride of men. Jesus himself said this in, in Matthew eleven twenty five. This is what Jesus said in prayer to the Father. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now, look at the quote he gets from Isaiah. How many people have heard this quote somewhere in the past? It just rang a bell in their mind. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard all that the fathers. We've heard this and it came from Isaiah. Paul quoted it, which may be why you're more familiar with it, unless you've studied Isaiah. The common way this passage is interpreted goes something like this. The heaven that God has prepared for all of us is so marvelous that we can't imagine what's up there waiting for us until we get there. We'll never have an appreciation for what we're what we'll have. That's why the eye has not seen it yet. The ear has not heard of it yet. It's out of our consciousness. Those are true statements, but that's not what it's talking about. That's not what Isaiah is saying. Paul explains what Isaiah is saying in verses 10 and 11. Look what he says. He says, for to us, God revealed them. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Those things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. Paul says, for to us, God revealed, past tense, revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. This is that wisdom he promised. This is that thing that the mature can have. This isn't something that awaits till we get to heaven and then we discover it all. This is something here and now available to the spirit. And I am not saying that we can know everything that is knowable. I am saying that there is an opportunity. Paul says the things that our eye and ear and intellect could never imagine in advance on its own are the very things that are now being revealed to us by the spirit. What are these things? Well, the plan of redemption in Christ, first and foremost, the gospel. that You could not have imagined the truth of what God had prepared in Christ until God himself made it known to you. You could have heard it. Many of us probably did. That didn't mean you accepted it. You couldn't realize it as truth. 
But it was possible with the Spirit. And now with the Spirit, men and women have the ability to know what God has prepared for us, both here and in the time to come, to a degree, to a limit. Paul says those things freely given to us by God. There's a sense of God having to reveal and to freely give, but as he does, we can receive. Paul and Isaiah are not teaching that you have no hope to understand what God has prepared for you. They're teaching that apart from the power of God, men will not be able to know such things. But by the Spirit, they become available. Now, God did not expect us to stumble through the years we live on this earth, waiting for some future day, while in the meantime we live in total ignorance to him and what he has planned for us. Because if that's what you think Isaiah is saying, it denies the very experience we're having right now. Far more is available to us by the Spirit, I believe, than is restricted. The issue is, are we making ourselves available to it? Are we going to look for it? Paul says the Spirit searches all things. What that really means in the Greek, there's nothing of God so profound, so distant, that the Spirit can't bring it to us. Like a man himself who knows himself because he is him, the Spirit is God, he knows all there is to know about God, so he can give us everything that there is to know should God make it available to us. I want you to notice something about the way Paul phrases this, though. Notice he says the wisdom is prepared. It's prepared, which means it's necessary for us to take advantage of it. Coming to faith instantly grants us access to God's wisdom. But we have to work with the spirit in order to see those things revealed to us. I like to compare it to having a library card. I mean, if you think about it, obtaining that card doesn't result automatically in all of the knowledge contained in all of those books leaping off the shelf and into your brain automatically because you got the card. That's not how the process works. It grants you an opportunity, though. It grants you the opportunity to learn what has been prepared for you in those books. But what do you got to do? You got to go in and you got to avail yourself of it. You have to make use of it. If you devote yourself to learning what they hold, then a measure of it becomes yours. Similarly, you have the spirit indwelling you by faith. And Paul says one of the primary purposes that God had in giving you the spirit was to grant you access to the mind of God. That's what God's done with the spirit of God, his own spirit. Think about what that means you have access to. When the disciples were being told to prepare for Jesus' departure, this is what he told them. He says in John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. They didn't get a different spirit than we did. That spirit is still working today in the same way, bringing us the mind of God. We have all received a spirit whose mission it is to teach us what we have already been given freely, what has been prepared for us by God, like the books in the library. It's all free. God is not asking us to earn this. God is not asking us to deserve it. He's not asking us to achieve something. He's asking us to use what he's made available to us. The Corinthians were so busy resting in their worldly wisdom, relying on their own understanding, living in the pride of the flesh, that they never, it seems, used their heavenly library card. They never checked out a book. They never sought the Spirit for understanding. They never sought the Scriptures for truth. They appear to be ignorant of even basic things in their faith. Later in chapter 3, Paul is going to talk to them about their infancy in Christ. If we live like the Corinthian church, you and I stand a good chance of missing out on the blessing that is available to us as Christians in the here and now. Think about what they did and ask yourselves if you're doing this today. 
Let's not trade the foolishness of God for the wisdom of men and think ourselves strong in the process. Let's not do that. Let's pray. Let's read our Bibles. Let's listen to the Spirit. Then let's go out. Let's proclaim the foolish message. Let's rely on the power of God. And let's suffer the indignity that comes to anyone who does that. The prophets were persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. Don't expect less. Membership has its privileges. Let's use our library card. Let's... Let's take advantage of what we've been given to do in this world. Let's go to prayer and then to communion. Heavenly Father, a short prayer, Father, simply thanking you for the message, for the privilege that it is to carry it, and for the helper, your spirit, who can reveal all things as you see fit, who comes along with us, Father, for that is the way we can accomplish anything for your sake. Thank you for the word of God that it may fuel that engine in us to do the work you've called us to do. And thank you, Father, for a church of like-minded men and women, like-minded men and women who, who come here for the same reason, to know you better and to follow you more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.